You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. is Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. As we look at it, we're going to realize this is a glimpse into a time period of Jesus as he grows up. And in it, we're going to see two explicit truths about who he is, what he's like, what he's up to. And then third, we're going to look at some implicit truth that I think we can all relate to and need to learn from. All right? So Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. Here we go. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to their custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. But when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Jesus said, well, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? (laughs) But his parents didn't understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down with them to Nazareth and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And from that moment on, Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, and in favor with both God and men. Church, this is the word of the Lord. That's it. That's the glimpse of Jesus growing up. This is, this is all we get. It's like the shortest section of a biography you can ever read. Now, here's the thing that's really interesting about this. You and I, as I said, are obsessed with this time period in his life, right? We all want to know, okay, well, what was it like? What was going on? And it's because we think in our culture that those, those developmental events that occur as we grow up are so important to shaping who we are. We project that onto Jesus. You want to know what's true? We're not the first people to think that. In fact, in the very early ages of the church, people had the exact same questions and concerns. Everybody wanted to know and was fascinated with this time period in Jesus' life. What happened between the moment that he was born and the moment that he started his ministry? What happened? In fact, and this is fascinating, even within the first, you know, 60, 70 years of Jesus' death, you have certain books that are starting to come out that are called infancy gospels, stories that people made up to try and fill in this gap. One of my favorite is called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. Now, I'll tell you right now, they are totally trash. I mean, this is like gossip reading magazines that have no no relation at all to reality. In fact, the stories are so absurd, you look at it and you laugh, but they're funny. 
okay? If you want to read it, you can totally Google Infancy Gospel of Thomas. It's actually not that long, but, or Infancy Narrative of Thomas. Now, let me tell you how the story starts out. When Jesus was five years old, this story makes up. When Jesus was five years old, he was a typical boy. And so he, was, he took a stick and he was playing by a stream. And he took this stick and he made his own little stream off of the stream. I mean, you can get the image of this, right? There's this little stream and so he sticks it in the mud and this little peel of water pools over here and he makes this series of pools to play in because he's a boy. And so being a boy with a mud puddle, what do you think he does? jumps in the mud. He plays in the mud because he's a boy. And while he's playing in the mud, he takes this mud and he's playing with it. And soon enough, it begins to dry out and it becomes like a clay. And so he starts molding this clay and he makes a bird, a dove specifically. And then he sneezes on it or he breathes on it. Well, that just brought life to the dove. And so the dove starts flapping all the way around and you go, oh, it's a miracle. Until the neighborhood kid comes by with his own stick and sees Jesus' puddle of mud and goes, ha, ha, and starts messing with it. And it breaks the barrier where the water was, and so the water spills out. Well, Jesus, being a five-year-old boy, gets angry with this kid, curses him, and the kid withers up and dies. <laughs> then, Jesus, being a distraught little child, distraught little child, stomps off home, and while he's going home, he bumps into somebody. Well, that just sets him off, curses that guy, and he dies. Then... Jesus gets home, Joseph finds out about what Jesus has done, scolds him, makes Jesus bring everybody back to life, and Jesus is like, all right, fine, Dad. Well, it just so happens that all of this occurred on the Sabbath day, and so from age five, you have Jesus messing with the religious establishment of the day. Everybody's upset with this kid, and the stories get more absurd from there. It's amazing. Like, he's playing on a roof with some kid, and he bumps him, and the kid falls off. And Jesus goes, it wasn't my fault. Look, he's not even dead. So Jesus jumps off after him and raises the kid to life. Uh, They just keep going. The point is, (laughs) these stories are so ridiculous. They're so absurd. The moment you read them, you go, yeah, this doesn't even fit with the scripture. But the point is, people have been obsessed with this time period in his life. It's not just you and me who are fascinated by it. Everybody wants to know. And yet this, what we read, is the only glimpse we get. Just this. Those are the only remarks on his life at this stage that we have, which means the rest of his life is unremarkable. See what I did there? Huh? Yeah. It's unremarkable. In fact, scholars have concluded, because this is the only thing we have, that Jesus must have lived an ordinary, normal, typical Jewish boy's life. There was nothing that would have been out of the ordinary. And this makes sense. This also means we can extrapolate that by the time Mary and Joseph, after having Jesus made their way back up to Nazareth, they got on with life. Life just took over. They had more kids, and then they had mouths to feed. So Joseph went to work. We know he was a carpenter. Mary had to take care of the children, had to take care of the house, had to educate the children, and life just took over. And we find that life had such routine to it that they even had a holiday vacation schedule. I don't know if you caught that, but that's where the beginning of this passage starts, is as was their custom, they went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Every year they did this. That is, until something extraordinary happened, something that was not expected, something that pushed their understanding both of who Jesus is and what he was supposed to be like. See, they had this understanding of what he was, and all of a sudden he's breaking that perspective for them. 
and they don't understand it, and it throws them. I want to open it, and I want to read through this passage one more time. I want to take it a little slower and just kind of understand what's going on here. But as we do, I also want to point out, this passage does reveal two explicit truths about Jesus. I will intentionally point you to them. But as I said, the thing that I want to wrestle with is this implicit reality that also exists. And it has to do with the way Mary and Joseph have begun to perceive Jesus and expect Jesus to act a certain way. And I want to argue this morning that I think we have a tendency to do the same thing. I think we have a tendency to have a very narrow perspective on how Jesus is supposed to act and interact in the world. And when he doesn't do that, not only does it challenge our assumptions of him, but we totally miss what he's up to. So, two explicit things, one implicit thing. Let's read through it. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. So again, we have here an established habit of the family. This is what they did every year. And in fact, we know, based on reading the law, that if you were a pious Jewish man, specifically a man, you would go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover every year. In other words, this small little sentence tells us Jesus came from a religious family. They took the law seriously. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival, as was their custom. And after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. And you're going, hold on a second. How do you not know your kid is with you? Now, my kid is way too young to run away from me. She's only four months, okay? But I assume that when you go to Disneyland, you check the back of the car before you leave. I assume. Now, I should also confess, because the person is in this room, when I was a daycare leader, at one point, we left Austin somewhere. (laughs) But he's safe now. (laughs) But the point is, the point is, I, I, I don't know how you missed this. And so you wonder, well, how did they not notice? Well, the next few verses kind of explain that. Uh thinking he was in their company. So they thought he was in their company. They traveled on for a day, and they began to look for him among their relatives and friends. But when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem. In other words, what we discover is the reason they didn't know that Jesus was with them was they traveled in large caravans. This this journey from Nazareth down to Jerusalem would have been rather treacherous to go alone. You have robbers on the road, you have all sorts of wild animals, and so the safest way to travel was in large groups of people. And so Jesus would have traveled with probably extended relatives, family and friends from his village. This would have been a large community that's going on. And so Jesus' parents are expecting, and and here's the other thing too, the kid's 12 years old. In our culture, we give 12-year-olds a lot of space. But in their culture, at what age are you considered a man? 13. This would be the equivalent of basically saying this kid's like 17 years old. Okay, we give 17-year-olds a lot of of leverage, right, in terms of responsibility. So it makes sense that they wouldn't have necessarily checked in with him while they were leaving. They just assumed, oh, he's hanging out with David and Ezra and Nehemiah and maybe their friend Esther and... Other Jewish names you want to think of, they were down the road with them, hanging out at their house. But it wasn't until nighttime that all the immediate families would have gathered together for dinner and to go to bed. And it was at that time they go, hey, somebody's missing. Where's your big brother, James? What's going on? And you're like, oh no, what happened? 
Well, so his parents, they get up and it says that they, they looked among their family and their friends and he wasn't anywhere to be found. And you go, okay, well, why didn't they immediately turn around? Well, here's the thing. A day's walk in this culture would have been 20 to 25 miles. And now it's the middle of the night. They can't immediately turn back. First of all, how do you think Mary slept that night? Yeah, a little bit of stress. So the second day, they turn back and they have to walk all the way back to Jerusalem. And apparently they don't find him when they immediately get back. Day three, they start searching for him and then they find him. Verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening, um, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him, meaning Jesus, was amazed at his teaching, at his understanding, and his answers. Everyone who heard him was amazed. So here's the first explicit truth. Remember I told you this passage has two explicit truths. Here's the first. From a young age, we are told that Jesus had some sort of supernatural intelligence. Supernatural wisdom and understanding of the law. One of the incredible things, um, one of the great philosophers of our day, a guy named Dallas Willard, a USC philosophy professor, was, was brilliant in theology. He said that Jesus was the smartest man to ever live. I mean, it's a bold statement for a Christian, but the thing that I think is really interesting is non-Christian scholars tend to agree that Jesus was brilliant. Even people that aren't Christian, when they look at the teachings of Christ, recognize this guy was intelligent. And you want to know why? Because Jesus, unlike every other religious leader that had come before him, and frankly, the way that Jesus teaches is even still radical today, Jesus flipped the idea or the philosophy of religion on its head. See, most religions in the world, in fact, I would say every religion in the world, apart from Christianity, is all about what you do on the outside, right? If you want to be righteous, if you want to be holy, then that you have to live a righteous and you have to live a holy life. It's about what you do. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Religion isn't at all about what you do. It's all about these internal realities of who you are. Religion isn't about what you do. It's about who you place your faith in. And faith is this internal reality. Jesus flips the entire thing. Let me, let me give you an example from Jesus' own teachings. When Jesus is discussing food laws, remember the Old Testament understanding of food laws was certain foods had the ability to defile you. So if you ate lobster or you ate bacon or you ate... Um, shrimp, then you were no longer kosher to begin with, and that food had defiled you. And Jesus says, it's not what you put into your body that defiles you, but it's what comes out of your body. For out of the, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus totally changed the way we understand religion. And I'll tell you, this is radical even still to this day. You look at every other world religion, it's about your human activities. And Jesus goes, no, it has nothing to do with your human activities. It has everything to do with what God has already done for you. This is radical. This is transformative. And this is why when people look at the teachings of Christ, everyone recognizes this man was brilliant. This man was brilliant. And what we discover is that from age 12, he seems to already possess this sort of supernatural intelligence. This is important because there are other people that argue Jesus wasn't truly God until the baptism. And at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended and then he became a God-like figure. And the Spirit is what gave him this supernatural wisdom and understanding. But what Luke is doing in this passage is he's making it explicitly clear. No, no, no. Jesus had divine-like qualities from the time he was 12 years old. This should not shock you. 
in some way. And so everything you're about to read, this didn't change with the, with the baptism. There was something early on in this. And so when he spoke, everybody was amazed. That word amazed, if you want to underline it, just infers awe. This grand sense of awe. But I want you to notice how his parents respond. The crowds were amazed. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. Now, I know that seems minor because in English, the two words, amaze and astonish, they're not, they're not vastly different definitions. But in Greek, they are. And in fact, we don't have a great English term for this word astonished. Um, in our sense, when we read it, we assume, oh, it just implies this great sense of awe and wonder and joy, right? That's kind of the sense of astonishment. But in Greek, the word more implies this sense of great relief, like, phew, but I don't know how you spell that. Phew, I found him. And in fact, what they say it kind of reiterates this. They said, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. In other words, and I know it may sound like I'm making a mountain out of a molehill here, but this is important. I don't think his parents listened to a word that he said. And there's nothing in the text that gives us any impression that they were listening like the crowds were listening. The crowds were amazed. His parents were just relieved to see him. In other words, they were so caught up in the stress of having a lost child, which, let's be honest, There we go. So, uh, armpit. There we go. <laughs> Had to think about that. So the crowds were amazed. His parents were simply relieved. And so when they show up and see him, I don't think they were listening to him. This is really important. Okay, this is really important. Because you would think if anybody would understand that, of course, Jesus is going to be wowing people with teaching, it would be the people who were visited by angels and shepherds in the verses before but they weren't. They weren't expecting Jesus to do this. And in fact, it totally burst their bubble that he would have done this. In fact, Jesus' own statement implies this. How did you not know? Didn't you understand? I mean, look at what it says. Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? How did, how did you not get this? What's going on? Well, the, the second thing here I want to hit on, I told you, two implicit or explicit truths. The first, he had supernatural knowledge. The second, Jesus also seems to have an interesting under, or an intimate understanding of who his father really is. Jesus recognizes that, yes, Joseph is his humanly father, but his true father is his heavenly father. And so he goes to his parents, how did you not understand that I would be here? Did, did you not see this? Did you not get this in any way? And also, in this culture, nobody referred to God as father. That's a term of intimacy that later got developed. I mean, we say it all the time in our prayers, but that's because that's the way Jesus told us to interact with God. Nobody else interacted with God as Father. So Jesus is already expressing this, but his parents have a very interesting response. Verse 50. Verse 50. But they didn't understand what he was saying to them. And again, you go, how did they not get this? How did they not get this? Did they not read the verses before this? I mean, if you had a radical dream with an angel telling you, you are going to have a kid, and then you get pregnant without the other stuff, 
I think that would stick in my head. More than that, when you get visited by shepherds who tell you about a myriad of angels that were singing the glories of your son, how do you forget about this? When you go to the temple after your kid is born and you have two people come up and prophesy profound things over your kid, how do you forget about this? The key is because that was 12 years ago. For us, as we read this, that was only 40 verses before that. Few verses. But 12 years? 12 years of a life where they had just gotten into a routine and this routine over time had allowed them to begin to build this picture of who they thought their son was. A routine and an understanding of this is the way our son is supposed to act. These are the things our son is supposed to do. And all of a sudden he's breaking that routine. From our perspective we go, yeah, of course he's breaking that routine. It totally fits with everything that's been prophesied. But they forgot. They forgot. They had gotten into a routine. And so this is why I'm saying, this is where it brings out that implicit truth that I think is in the text. And I want to be clear on this. The text does not explicitly say this. This is me reflecting on the text. Me reflecting both in terms of the context of the, the book of Luke and the, the phrasing, but also the fact that Luke's parent, or excuse me, Jesus' parents just don't get it. How do they not get it? Because I'm saying that they put Jesus in this perspective. If you want to call it, they put him in a box, you can say that. I feel like we overuse that phrase. But that's what they did. And the truth is, we do the same thing. Many of you have been going to church your entire lives, right? And for some of us, we stopped with a childhood understanding of who Jesus is. What we were taught as a child and all those different stories, that was very significant for us as a child, but we've stopped growing in our understanding of Jesus. And in fact, our relationship with Jesus is built on past experiences. And we continue to go back to different stories that we've been told, different things that we heard in Bible studies or in Sunday school or in sermons, and that's the depth of our relationship, is something that occurred in the past. Rather than continuing to engage his word and continue to say, Lord, speak to me. If you are real, if you are true, if you are still living and active and engaged in a relationship with me, that you're pursuing that. This would be the equivalent of you when you get married just stopping dating your spouse after the wedding day. I've been married for about eight years. And the one thing I've learned is she's not the same woman. And in fact, the more I see her grow, the more in awe of her, especially now that she's become a mom, I'm seeing all these different sides of my wife that I never knew because I'm continuing to grow in relationship with her. But the problem is we treat Jesus in that opposite way where it's like, well, we got married, we, we got our salvation, we got in the door, we got our stamp of approval, stop. And now we just go to church out of habit and build on all these past dreams. But if we believe that Jesus is living and active and engaged in life with us, then how can we stop in our understanding and discovery of who he is? We're starting on Wednesday nights. We did this last week. I mentioned this. Um, the book of Revelation as a, as a Bible study. And it's really cool. And so if you want to come, it's Wednesdays, 7 o'clock. We're having dinner at 6 o'clock. And it's a really interesting study. But one of the things about the book of Revelation that I find absolutely fascinating is that in the book, Jesus is referred to hundreds of different times. I mean, the book is all about who Jesus is and what he's doing. But his name only comes up like a handful of times. The name Jesus Christ only comes up a handful of times. The rest of the time is a number of different titles and descriptions of who this person is. 
And the really fascinating thing as you read through the book of Revelation is a lot of these titles and descriptions often push our current understanding and perspective of who Jesus is. Typically, we stop at, well, he's my Lord and he's my Savior. And John goes, yes, that's true, but let me also tell you about this guy. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. He's the faithful. He's the true. He's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Lamb who was slain, the, the Lamb who is faithful enough to be able to open the seals. All these different things. The only one who's able to stand in the throne room of God. All these different descriptions of him. And as you read through Revelation, you have this, if you take the time to look at these descriptions and stop and go, what does this reveal about Christ? You begin to realize, whoa, this is going to blow my perspective of him out of the water. If you don't believe me, genuinely, do that as a devotional activity this week. Just read through a chapter of Revelation. Revelation 1, 2, 3, whatever. And every description of Christ, just stop and say, what does this tell me about who he is? How does this relate to what I currently understand Jesus to be about? And where does this push me? I guarantee you that'll be a rich Bible study experience for you. It doesn't take a lot of effort. But that would be fascinating. The truth is, we stop in our understanding of Christ. But I think there's other things that, that kind of force us to view Jesus through a certain lens. I think the one thing that postmodernism has done a really good job of in our culture is revealing to us these, these lenses or biases that we have. These lenses that have an ability to, to force us to realize we're only viewing the world from a certain perspective. And these biases are anything from our, our gender, to our age, to our race, to our socioeconomic background, to where we live, to the people we surround ourselves with. There's a whole host of these kind of demographics or, or lenses that shape the way, we, the way we view scripture, the way we engage Jesus. And we have to be aware of those. And we have to push ourselves to get outside of them or we're going to miss what Jesus is really like. When I was in seminary, probably the hardest class I took was from a black woman from the Caribbean who was theologically liberal and um, uh, an ultra-feminist. Like, she trumpeted herself on this. I am a feminist. And so, in fact, she wrote all of her commentaries on the Bible from a feminist perspective. It was fascinating. Her and I could not have come from different backgrounds. And so the way she approached the scriptures, just the, the intentional ways she approached scripture, I would have never thought to do that. And so as we get in, in her class specifically, we looked at the Old Testament law from a feminist perspective, from a woman's perspective. I had never done that before. And in fact, I had this bias as I read the Old Testament to just assume everything God did was about promoting male-dominated societies. But when you get in it from a female perspective and you begin to read the scriptures, you begin to realize, no, 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 God has this incredible plan for women. God has this, this respect for women that is mind-boggling in comparison to every other religion of the time. It's ridiculous. I never saw that. I never saw that. Part of the other part of seminary experience is I was forced to be in a small group with people. And I say forced because I didn't really have a choice. But one of the really cool things about that experience was I went to school with a number of Koreans. Um, for whatever reason, the seminaries in Korea just weren't super developed. I think they're becoming more developed, but at the time, they weren't. And so the majority of people that wanted to go into ministry in Korea came to the United States. The one thing I've learned about the Korean brothers and sisters, those guys can pray. Those guys can pray. They believe that when they pray, God listens to them. 
They believe that God actually will act upon their prayers. These men and women were so faithful and diligent with their prayers. Like, that wasn't the way I engaged God. I engaged God from a far more intellectual approach, if you will, because that's the way I've been raised. They were far more spiritual in their approach. I needed to see God in that way. That totally challenged my perspective in the midst of the thing. Another one is this. The more I start to hang out with people that are not my age, that are usually my parents' age or older, I have begun to realize certain things about that generation. Number one, you've been beat up by the reality of life. And that's a good thing. Because what it has developed in you is these still waters that run deep. Remember that phrase? This idea that you're just really calm on the outside. You have an understanding of life. You know what you believe. You know what you think. You understand where you're going. All these different things. And they, they build this incredible confidence inside of you. And so when life happens and life throws you these massive curveballs, it's amazing to me to watch the faith of these older men and women. Things that would rock me or devastate me. They're like, it's not fun, but God is faithful. God is true. That's an incredible gift that the older generation has. This depth of understanding and, and solidness. At the same side, though, and I mean, this is more me. I mean, you guys know me. In fact, you're going to hear it in this sermon. I'm going to get a little politically biased. Or more importantly, like I like to stir the pot because of my idealism. Right? And the younger generation is usually full of idealists. And that's a wonderful thing. Because it continues to push us to realize this is not all it has to be. There's so much more that we can engage in in the world and do things so differently. And we need that. The problem with the younger generation, whatever new idea we tend to just jump to. The Bible says we're tossed about like the waves of the sea. They just throw us from one thing to the next. We don't have these deep waters. And so, in fact, a lot of times younger people will have some major catastrophe happen in their life and they immediately chuck their faith. The same thing could happen to an older person. They don't tuck their faith. Why is that? Older people have this deep understanding that young people just don't have. We're tossed around too easily. Imagine if you get those generations together. Imagine what church would actually look like if we crossed the aisles, bridged the gap, whatever you want to call it, and talked. And the older people sat with the younger people and not from the perspective that they had nothing to learn from the younger people but allowed the idealism and the zeal and the passion of the younger people to wear off on the older people. Well, at the same time, the older people are able to speak back in this confidence of faith and assurance of life that God is true and they don't need to have answers to everything in life. Imagine what that would look like. Look, I bring this up, this idea that we have this tunnel vision idea of who God is and because of it, we miss. We miss what God is up to in the world because here's the truth. I believe God is living and active and on the move today. And I believe God is doing things that, he, that are new and revolutionary, things he wouldn't have done 20 or 30 years ago, things that are incredible. And I'm afraid that because of our biases, we're going to miss what God is up to. In the same way that Mary and Joseph missed what Jesus was doing right before their eyes because of their own understandings, I'm afraid we're going to miss the exact same thing. Jesus makes these statements, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Do we believe that? Do we believe that as we look out in the world, there are people that are longing to know Christ, but we're so uh, incapable of going out and doing it? One of the examples I gave last service, and I think it's still appropriate, is if you look at the shifting demographics of the way we do missions in the world today, um, 
30, 40 years ago, people thought when you brought drums into a sanctuary that that was an instrument of the devil. You think I'm kidding. They do think this. Instrument of the devil. They thought guitars were also instruments of the devil. And yet, our brother, Lee Humarian, when he was here, he was in a metal band that traveled playing horrible music from my perspective. Hated it. Absolutely hated it but used it as a tool to reach people for Christ. Now that they're in the Ukraine, they travel with bands playing this devil music, whatever you want to call it, to share Christ with hundreds of thousands of people that have never experienced Christ before and never would have had it not been from the vehicle of music. If we were so stuck, though, in our biases of the past, we would totally miss what God is up to in the world. We would totally miss it. Here you go. My idealism kicks in. This week, I think, was a horrible week for our country on a few different levels. And so you can get mad at me all you want for being political. Deal with it. Johnson Amendment still hasn't been repealed, so I'm not going to go too far. And I'm not even going to get on the politics of the entire thing, but this is what I do believe. I believe that if the church doesn't stand up for the dignity, worth, and respect of human beings from wherever they are in the world, then we're missing what Jesus is up to in the world. And if we don't do it, I believe the stones will cry out, as scripture says. Somebody will stand up. Somebody will defend it. Why are we not there doing this? And for some of you, it's because this is your political party, or this is your man, and you're standing behind him. And you may agree with 99% of what he does, and that's fine. But as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, you have to make your voice be heard. Because if we don't, we're totally missing the boat on where Christ is active in the world. Because Christ is all about the human dignity of every single individual. Christ did not just come for the white people. Christ came for all people in all times. Ironically, typically from that part of the world is where he showed up. So there you go. There, that's the soapbox. Okay, put that down. But I'll tell you one other thing in terms of following Christ or allowing, recognizing we have these biases that tend to blind us is this. We are in a time as a church where we are dreaming about where God is leading us. We're dreaming about it. We had that consultant come in, as you know about, right? And we're in the process now of developing a vision. Where is it that God is leading us in the next 20, 50, 60, 100 years? Where is that going to go? And our starting point is this, and it's a great question. If you were to plant a church in Huntington Beach, if you had no building, you had no property, what would you do? What are the great needs of Huntington Beach? It's a wonderful question. I mean, think about that. In my opinion, as I look at the area, we have a lot of churches. I don't know that I would have built a building. But what I look at is, I look at all these people, and I think when I look at my community, when I know people my age, every single one of us longs for a place where I am known, where I am cared for, where I have an ability to care for other people and know other people, where I have this intimate relationship with people. The problem is they're not showing up to church buildings to accomplish that. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that Christ is no longer in the business of reaching those people. I believe Jesus' heart breaks for all those people and longs for them to know him better and longs for them to have true, intimate community as he created to take place in the body of Christ. I believe that. But church, that means we have to allow these biased perspectives of how we view church, we have to confess them and go, maybe that's not the way we need to approach it. Look, I'm going to be honest, I don't know where we're going to end a year from now after this vision casting. I don't know. I'm excited. But that's also because I'm an idealist. But the question is, 
are we willing to recognize, ooh, maybe Jesus is up to more than we've ever really expected before? Church, Jesus is on the move. And all I'm saying today is, I want to follow him. I want to follow him, but I have to admit, sometimes I miss what he's up to. And I don't think I'm alone in that. But it starts with just admitting you have a problem. And then saying, Lord, lead me. So let's pray. Father, as we reflect on your word, as we chew on the scriptures, we find ourselves, um, again, declaring that you are good. That you are so much greater than we often give you credit for. And at the same time, we have to confess that sometimes we limit our perspective of what you're up to or what you should be doing or what you should be saying in our lives. But Lord, we long, we hunger to know you more intimately through your word, through our interactions with other people. We, we long to have a better glimpse of who you are, Jesus, that our relationship with you would be ever growing, ever increasing, ever more intimate than it ever was before. And at the same time, I pray that as you shift our perspective of who you are and what you're doing, that we would, be, we would just be filled with the zeal to follow you into the places that you are going, to do the things that you are doing. And Lord, through our church, but through our individual lives, that we would be able to step into the work of your kingdom and see you have your way with our family, with our friends, with our community. We just pray all this in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen.